High atop the Colorado building in downtown Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, you're listening to 14th and G, the podcast at the intersection of business and politics. And now, your host, Dean Hingsley. Hate your heart out, Don Pardo. Thanks to our announcer, Jake, for helping me cut that new introduction, and thank you for joining me today on the 14th and G podcast. It's a new year and a new quarter, and that can only mean one thing. It's quarterly slide deck time. Each quarter, our founding partner, Bruce Melman, puts together a slide deck of the trends he's seeing in business and politics. And since he also signs my check, I'm more than glad to welcome him into the studio today to discuss it, along with our other founding partner, David Castagnetti. Incidentally, if you'd like to take a look at the slide deck and get on the distribution list for that and this podcast, you can do so at melmancastagnetti.com. So you guys stayed up late to watch the uh, impeachment trial last night? No. Way too late. Yeah. It uh, it got contentious late. (laughs) Uh, Chief Justice Roberts had to uh, admonish uh, both sides. I believe uh, Chairman Nadler and the President's attorneys mixed it up. And he admonished the senators with this quote I pulled. This is great. He says, in the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging. And the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used, said the Chief Justice. I don't think we need to aspire to that high of a standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. Do either of you know what a pettifogger is? On the advice of counsel, I don't know who a pedophagger is. It is, uh, it is one who places undue influence on petty details, which I'm doing right now. <laughs> or as we would call it, Melman. <laughs> so, Casto, uh, Joe Biden's been the front runner now uh, since the beginning of this race. I don't think he's ever lost that lead. So what does he have? How does he have to perform in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, to, to maintain viability going into South Carolina. I, you know, uh, Dean, I agree with you 100%. Senator, Vice President Biden has maintained an unbelievable lead through this whole process. And to his credit, he's really hung in there, both on the ups and the downs. Of As in, it's kidding. actually hard to believe <laughs> yeah, well. when you say unbelievable. <laughs> the, the other side of it is, I think, in answering the question, is I think he's going to be a respectable second or third. Uh, in both places to show that he's strong and he's been able to organize. And also, I think, because he, he needs to help with the the resource question. Not that he's hurting for resources, but he doesn't have that natural constituency that certainly Senators Warren and, and um, Buttigieg, uh, and, excuse me, Senator, Senators Warren and Sanders have, as well as uh, Mayor Pete and what they have in terms of their ability to raise from the grassroots. And I think that will help him a little bit as they move to South Carolina. Yeah, although the thing to think about Iowa is uh – there's a, there is a lot of pressure on him. If he wins, well, sure, he's been the front runner. You would have expected him to win. And also his opponents are all stuck at an impeachment trial. If he loses to three senators who weren't able to go to Iowa for three weeks in a row, that doesn't look very good. The other thing history tells us is if you lose Iowa, don't scream about it. It's on to and name a bunch of states raising your fist in the air because 
uh, as like we saw, Dean. <laughs> like Governor Dean, it, it's uh, you could you can lose it gracefully and you can lose it poorly. How, who was it? Um, Some of us appreciate what Governor Dean did. By the way, just for the didn't record. Mitt Romney lose it, but he won it before he lost it in 2012. <laughs> he, he won it before he lost it. Uh, Clinton lost it before he won it. He was the comeback kid in New Hampshire. I'm the comeback kid. It's all about momentum. It's all about momentum. And then uh, America's mayor. Uh, not the one that's tied up in the impeachment scandal, but the other America's mayor uh, yeah. stalking out there uh, already spent almost a quarter of a billion dollars on his yeah. campaign. At the great, the first to start off, the great thing about Mayor Bloomberg, he's from my hometown, Medford, Massachusetts. He's a graduate of Medford High School, just like I am. He's it's not making cool. you Secretary of State. You keep trying for this. <laughs> it's pretty neat, but you know, he. It's fascinating to watch, right, Dean? I mean. He's he has so much money. He's been able to build an incredible staff. He's really playing the game completely different. Decided not to play in the first four states, and yet here he is, ready to to pounce on Super Tuesday and spending the money that he has spent. I think it's up to what two hundred and eighty million dollars now Amazing. that he's spent. It's it's incredible. And does he upset the apple cart? The rules are different. You need a fifteen percent threshold. Now for the Democrats moving forward, what does that mean? Does it change the dynamic? And does he take over uh, as the four, you know, whoever wins the first four states kind of like, whoa, what just happened here? Of course, it's equally plausible that he's one of the colossal dollar per vote flops in American history, along with, if I recall correctly, Meg Whitman's campaign and a few others. If Joe Biden does well in the first two states, and then he will obviously win South Carolina, he could win Nevada. If he surprises everybody and, and levers his uh, his front-runner state into a lot of momentum in Super Tuesday. I'm not sure who the natural Democratic Party primary voting constituency uh, against a successful with momentum Joe Biden is. Did, I think did, the whole idea is he's he's figuring that Biden, like we've all been figuring, would stumble on his third run for president. And then the alternative to Sanders or Warren has to emerge. And if the alternative has a billion dollars being spent, well, that's a viable alternative. It's only a viable alternative. But, but, but if you think about Mayor Bloomberg and what he's done and his, his, his ability to, to work both in the climate change space and in the gun space, those are two big areas where Democrats really care about. And those potentially are kind of Warren Sanders voters too, the real activist types because of his activity that he has taken, his groups have taken in individual states. Is there any scenario in which Mayor Bloomberg comes into Milwaukee with enough delegates on the first ballot? I think that's my gut is that's pretty hard to do, not impossible, but I'm not quite sure I would bet Melman a buck that that was going to happen. If it is, the Time Magazine cover is entitled The Six Billion Dollar Man. (laughs) (laughs) You get a car, and you get a car. Well, Bruce, let's turn to the uh, let's turn to the slide deck uh, just out for the first quarter 2020. Uh, The title is Hunting Black Swans. In the age of disruption, uh, we literally hunt black swans where I come from. Uh, they're, they're a sign of a poor tobacco harvest. <laughs> what is a black swan? Well, so uh, I don't mean the, uh, your, your Christmas dinner there, Dean. I'm, uh, black Swan was the, uh, was the title of a book by an economist, Nicholas Talib, talking about unpredictable or unforeseen events with very high impact. So low probability, high impact. The classic example is... Uh, for decades, we all knew economic certainty that the housing market never would fall in value until it did. 
And that was something that almost nobody was looking for, and therefore everything was designed for that as an impossibility. And when it happened, a whole lot of people went bankrupt, and some small number of people betting on the unexpected event made a ton of money. Uh, you might put in, you might put an impeachment trial uh, in that category, the third one in presidential in American history. I wouldn't actually. So we put that under the known. We divided the whole uh, 2020 year into what we considered knowns and unknowns. Everybody's priced in impeachment. You knew what the House was going to do. You and I knew it. Neither of us would have taken a bet on the other side of this. And likewise, uh, there is nothing that you and I can think of that will cause 20 Republicans to switch sides here and vote to oust this president. The trial is going to happen, and then the vote will be, you know, with on the you and I will get it within two or three votes of accurately predicting the acquittal by the Senate. The unknown question is, can Congress follow the impeachment and, and the nastiness that people are saying and have a productive year. And, and uh, we actually think they can. Uh, there, it, the, the conventional media wisdom is that feelings will be so raw that they can't also legislate. And uh, we think that's a mistake. And we think people who are uh, going home figuring it's going to be a write-it off because it's impeachment and then election year didn't follow 2019, didn't follow last Congress, and, and are walking away from some real opportunities. I think just to, if I may pick up on that, Dean, I think, you know, the interesting thing that, that Bruce talks about is if you look at what happened with Mrs. Pelosi uh, at the end of the cycle as the House voted on impeachment, they also passed a USMCA deal, huge spending deal with a number of tax provisions from ACA that were made permanent uh, as well. So the question to me is we start to move into the first part of this year and we get past impeachment in the first quarter here. Is Senator McConnell under the same pressures that Mrs. Pelosi was under, that he has to show that he can legislate? And that leads, as, as Bruce alluded to, leaves open some big questions. Like, what do you do on infrastructure? As one example, like he's already indicated that they may start having the Senate move, the Senate EPW com uh, committee move towards passing some kind of infrastructure bill. So you're seeing some movement here that's a little different. And I think as we're hunting black swans and trying to figure out what's out there, you know, there's some opportunities to get things done based on politics and what candidates need in order to get elected. It's yeah. a good point. If you went back to the complete belly flop that was the uh, health care repeal effort at the beginning of the Trump administration and pointed down the road to say, we're going to we're going to get a new NAFTA done. Uh, we're going to overhaul uh, taxes. Uh, th these these sorts of things would have been thought impossible uh, a couple of years ago, including oh. repealing some uh, health care taxes that were in place that, you know, Democrats and Republicans agreed on at the end of the day. No one saw the permanency of any of those tax cuts. Well, that's for sure. And, and Dean, I'd be interested in your take on this. Castagnetti was saying he thinks McConnell might feel some pressure to prove he's a legislator. I'm not sure I think Senator McConnell feels that pressure. McConnell, Senator McConnell's up. And for him to win, he first has to demonstrate that he and Trump are copacetic and good and, and work together well. Secondarily, I feel like he's, you know, he is in the Federalist Society Hall of Fame and what he, the Senate Majority Leader, has been able to do on judges. I, I agree with David's uh, entry into the conversation. I think people are going to be surprised at the president's willingness to dance with S Speaker Pelosi on a big infrastructure package. I don't believe that's because... Um, the uh, Senate Majority Leader either needs the paycheck from the Transportation Secretary's uh, salary uh, or, uh, or is trying to prove he can legislate. I believe it's because if the President wants it, 
McConnell wants it. Is that how you read the election? Uh, can, can, can I just interrupt though, just ahead. for one second on that? The only thing, I, what I mean by that, Bruce, is you're probably right whether McConnell needs uh, Leader McConnell needs it or not. We can debate, and I'm interested in what Dina say. But I think who Senator McConnell will pay attention to are Senator Cory Gardner, Senator Tom Tillis, uh, Senator Collins, and what is it that they may need as well. That part, I think, is possible. So I, I would amend my comment on that. I'm sorry, Dean. Uh, no, I think Speaker Pelosi and the president left to their own devices would rebuild the interstate highway system uh, uh, from scratch. I think the problem McConnell and the effort is going to run into is in the Senate. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of bean counters who've carried a lot of water, uh, put, a lot of, put a lot of policy initiatives on the national credit card and are not going to be too keen. Because the big question with infrastructure is always not the will to do it, but how you pay for it. And, and the idea I thought Republicans already passed that. Like, you guys just did how many <laughs> trillions of dollars in deficit spending for corporate tax cuts? Like, aren't you past that at this stage? I well, think there's a solid 25 to 30 Republican senators that really loathe to put another trillion dollars on the credit card. Well, so if it's loathe, I'm betting you could find 90 senators who are loathe. The problem then becomes when you have your blue state unions who want it, when you have the president beating his shoe on the table saying he wants it, I don't see... 25 Republican senators blocking. The only thing I can remember in the three years so far of the Trump presidency was Russia sanctions, where the president didn't want it, and you still had like 98 total votes for it because it was so overwhelmingly the right thing to do. I think if the president says, we're going to get this done, he doesn't lose a lot of votes on, uh, on especially votes where it's a David's point, where you get a bridge and you get them like every state's going to get infrastructure that they need. Uh, it takes a special kind of, frankly, John Boehner, right, to turn down earmarks, even when he can get a lot of earmarks, but he just was on principle. Uh, I miss that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you might be in uh, you might be in rare company, Bruce. Uh, uh, Black Swan circling. Uh, one one of your main slides is on how uh, how how President Trump wins versus how a Democrat wins. What are you looking at there? So uh, I'll offer the how Trump wins. It's a four-point plan. You make it a choice, you highlight the economy, you rally your base, and you run a smarter campaign. So first, you make it a choice. Midterms are a referendum. Uh, if it's a referendum on the president, that's tougher. But if it's a choice, you've got three compelling narratives. So if you're against Vice President Biden, he's 44 years a Washington, D.C. establishment insider. You're the agent of change. People keep the last eight of the last 10 Federal elections have seen people vote for change. If you're against Sanders or Warren, it's capitalism versus socialism. We know capitalism wins two out of three there. If you're against the mayors, Bloomberg or Buttigieg, well, it's populists against the elitists. One's a Rhodes Scholar and the other's the seventh wealthiest person on the planet. You highlight the economy. The president's got a 52% job approval for the economy. It's better than the first Bush. It's better than the second Bush. It was only 50. It's better than Clinton at 42. It's better than Obama at 40. In a recent USA Today Suffolk poll, 80% of Americans think 2020 is going to be better for their family. That is an electorate that's feeling pretty good about the economy and about their opportunities. You rally your base. Uh, the president's going to have the, probably the most uh, aggressive and effective digital campaign in history, and he's going to dominate the narrative, as he always does. And last, you run smarter. He will outraise and outspend anybody with the huge asterisk of unless Mayor Bloomberg decides he wants to spend the most, and then, you know, he has the unlimited resources to do so. But, uh, you know, swift boat anybody, they're going to define the demonominee nice and early. They're going to focus on the Electoral College, and he's going to provoke the woe. He's going to say 
things that cause the politically correct elites in the media, in, in on the coasts, probably me included. You know me well enough to know several things. If you say, I'm like, you can't say that. That's unacceptable. But a whole lot of folks in the flyover country where the battle's going to be fought think the media and think some on the left overreact. And it led in part to, uh, to folks... Uh, you know, seeing uh, Hillary Clinton as the queen of deplorables, and they proudly wore those MAGA hats, saying that's who they are. Provoke the woke. Is that your new uh, bumper sticker that you're going to use? Is that well, what it sure is? sure as hell not a bumper sticker. <laughs> Good Lord. I think uh, on the other side of it, uh, uh, Dean, uh, there are four things the Democrats need to do, right? One, make it a referendum. Two, tailor some messaging. Three, rally their resistance. And four, run a smarter campaign this time. And so as you think about making it a referendum, the Democrats need to avoid the cultural wars a little bit and focus on kind of the substance and what's happening. And they need to remind themselves that the president is clearly running underwater in terms of his favorability in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. And, you know, even for that matter, as we expand the map and look at our places like Arizona, like those are all opportunities that Democrats have in terms of uh, getting to the Electoral College. In tailoring the message, we have to bring back dignity and respectfulness back to the presidency and what it means uh, in terms of it. And, and then on the micro side, we really need to figure out how to target our message a little bit, continue to talk about gun control, look a little bit what's happening in the state of Virginia, literally, as we're sitting here today. Civil rights, immigration, health care again. Health care is always a big issue for Democrats, and people believe usually what Democrats want to do. And finally, ra rally the resistance, right? We really need to turn out our voters, African Americans, Latinos, the youth. Those are the key to any Democratic victory uh, at the end of the day, and how do we get those folks out just in the pure tactical form of bringing them out and have them vote? And finally, we just need to run smarter, and Bruce kind of touched upon this. We have to be careful of our words, right? Words matter. Uh, Democrats are always tend to be a little more politically correct, too. So we really do have to respect it and not talk about deplorables and talk about people and what we're going to do to make people's lives better and how we're going to help them, as well as bringing dignity and respect back to the country. Well, and I would note, Dean, tell me if you agree with this, uh, Democrats' problem in my mind isn't being politically correct. It's being intolerant of those who aren't politically correct. That's why the word deplorable was so dangerous for her, for, for Clinton. I agree with that. And I think, you know, it's Trump is going to run on the oldest political platform there is, and it's peace and prosperity. No new foreign wars and, and a booming economy. And I, I think people, you know, I think by and large the electorate responds to that. I think you're competing for uh, an exceedingly small sliver of the electorate that, uh, that's up for grabs. I, I think just the, the Democrats need to come around a cohesive macro message of kind of bringing dignity back to the United States and respectability back to the office as a theme of about what needs to be done, as well as kind of focus on the, the smaller things that help bring voters out. Uh, it, you know, vote, Democratic voters are going to be motivated, right? This president will motivate people. We need to motivate people in the right states and the right places and think about how do we potentially not lose as many voters in places like rural Pennsylvania. Dignity is, I, I really agree with you, Castro. If they can tag that dignity argument, even strong supporters of the president, gee, I wish he'd put that Twitter account away. I mean, I hear it all the time. Well, uh, and, you know, when you think about it, that's our 
how a dem wins it's tailoring the message it's it's segmenting it so that what most people hear especially the swing voters is the message of restoring decency dignity and stability it is not i have a plan for that it is not uh here's what you get on immigration we're going to decriminalize going through all those issues in some ways the modern campaign allows you to micro target so when you're trying to get the level of turnout you're, def you're definitely going to need from all of the various groups you can message to them but the national ads and the big picture need to be restoring decency, dignity, and stability, and stay the heck away from any issue that, that is a 51 percenter. And all of this leading to what could be a turnout tsunami. We've got, uh, we've got record high levels of interest uh, in getting out to vote this election. People are excited, right? They really want to vote. Look what happened just learning a lesson from the 2016 House elections, right? Winning where Democrats won a seat in Illinois where that was negative, Republican plus 12, right? Or conversely in Virginia, probably even more importantly than Illinois, where it was uh, Republican plus six, right? So you, you're seeing folks really do want to come out. And the excitement, uh, it, when you look at the CNN polling and the anticipation of voters, CNN's predicting about a 74% voter turnout uh, for this election cycle. That's a lot of folks. The key is it's got to be in the right places, though, right? It can't be just in New York City. Yeah, sorry, just CNN's measured 74% say they're very or extremely enthusiastic about voting next year. I don't think they predict what the ultimate turnout will be, though, as you point out, that has historically been a highly predictive number. If it's that high, it's the highest turnout in the lifetime of every living American. It's the highest since 1896. It seems to me there are two questions. There is the first question of, will all the Dems turn out? Uh, right now, the enthusiasm is off the chart. The midterms were the highest American turnout in 104 years. The off-year elections in 2019 were really high. But how are the Bernie bros, how are the Warren voters going to feel if it's the second ballot in Milwaukee and the superdelegates show back up? And once again, Bernie you know, has the football snatched away in their minds. Are they still going to turn out because they hate President Trump? Maybe. I, I would but, say yes. And if it's Elizabeth Warren or, or Senator Sanders, are the establishment folks who really do like the capitalist system, and they may not like a lot of the ways in which the president expresses himself, but are the people in Davos going to say, sweet, I'm psyched to come here next year with, with Bernie Sanders? The example I, I would say back to you at the end of the day is it's the way the Republican establishment settled for President Trump, too. At the end of the day, if my choice is Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren, Democrats are going to stay with Elizabeth Warren because there is no choice. And again, I think a little bit on what you said, Bruce, I, I agree with you in some of the micro-targeting. It is making sure it's the right folks, but the enthusiasm will be there on the Democratic side because of this president. But Casto, you take that Venn diagram of uh, first choice Trump, second, second choice Sanders. Yeah, first choice Sanders, second choice Trump. That's not an insignificant I, sliver. I, I, of that, you of notice that I did say Elizabeth Warren. I right. didn't say Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is a little, uh, a little bit different. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, right? Because then it really does come become, as I think as Bruce alluded to, capitalism versus socialism. He's admitted he's a socialist, right? It's a different, 
a different theme. Warren is for a more effective, Senator Warren's for a more effective government and making sure government is doing what it's supposed to do to help people get ahead. And I think there's a slight difference on that. Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think the difference would stand the test of a campaign. I think they would be, you know, she would be seen as a slightly less principled version of Senator Sanders, who is, you know, moved around on what she wants to do, taking away 137 million Americans' uh, health insurance. And everybody wants to bitch about, everybody does bitch about how much they might spend, but everybody likes their health insurance. They don't want to lose it to a government plan. And she's been crystal clear that's what she wants to do. And I think if she tries to back away from it, she won't convince people who have heard her say she's going to take it away that, but she will convince people who thought she was uh, principled and energized that she's a lot squirrelier and, and she'll come off like a, a like a traditional politician. Part of what makes Bernie succeed, why he's the number two, is he's nothing if not authentic. The guy has believed this since he took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union. I mean, he's been there. Turning, uh, black swans don't only exist here in the United States. Uh, looking overseas, we just signed China phase one trade deal. Uh, so mission accomplished and uh, on to Europe. <laughs> Soybeans accomplished, I Soybeans think, is the, is, is the mission. You know, look, first, uh, we don't have trade peace in our time, even with China. You know, there's still $370 billion of U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods. There's $110 billion of Chinese tariffs on U.S. goods. Right now, they're deciding whether the CFO of Huawei, who is also the founder's daughter, is going to be extradited to the United States to stand trial for sending uh, uh, arms to Iran. You have persistent cyber attacks. Uh, it's it'd be great if we can have calm waters. I think Secretary Mnuchin and the president would like to avoid uh, anything that is uh, economy spooking over the next 12 months. And it is our base case that the U.S.-China trade situation will will stay in stasis until November. What's election day? Until the, you know, a couple of days after the election. Um, by contrast, what? Oh, by the way, just to, I got to yeah. interrupt just because I can't miss this. President Trump and Calm Waters in the same sentence, like, whoa, that's that's pretty big. Well, look, he, he wants uh, he wants to your point. He he is he sees the opportunity to run on peace and prosperity, and he knows presidents who run on peace and prosperity who don't have tough primaries don't ever lose. He's got a plan. Um, that said, with the U.S. Uh, and EU, to your point, we're seeing a whole lot of trade frictions. The U.S. thinks it has a really strong hand, and we've been threatening uh, the EU with auto tariffs over more or less anything they don't agree with us on. It looks like French wine, at least, uh, Hanks, and good news for you. You're going to be able to keep drinking your French wine. That sounds terrific. <laughs> Italian wine's better, by the way. Hanks. Well, Italian wine, Italian wine could, face, uh, could face tariffs. We'll see if they back down on digital tariffs, too. But they're just, there are a lot of uh, issues that are both unresolved and trending poorly. So, but but just focusing on China for a second, it's not just these trade issues do not resolve uh, the the what seems to be a long term pulling apart of the countries on on a cultural level, on a military level, on a technological level. Where is this the great separation from China continuing? I think decoupling is a trend that has already begun and will extend for the next decade for sure. I don't think it's going to be full. Cold War II, we don't talk to them, we don't trade with them, you know, other than wheat when they're starving. But I do think we're going to increasingly see in the technology space spheres of influence. And we're going to see a desire to have either Western tech in your network or Chinese tech in your network, and, and a real challenge having uh, tech from both. Though it depends where you are, you know, your average app might be able to be ignored because that's just an app. It's just an app that rides on a phone. But as we're seeing with things like Huawei and ZTE, network that's deep in the equipment, 
uh, folks are getting paranoid about that. The Chinese have a plan, 2025 plan. They want to build their own semiconductors. They want to have their own networking equipment. They don't want to be dependent on Western technology in their networks, and you're seeing a reciprocal paranoia from the West. So moving back to back to America, we know who is going to lead the GOP. Uh, we're working through the process of who's going to lead the Democratic ticket, um, and you've got some ideas on what those demographics might look like. Well, this was having a little bit of fun and probably offending people in the process, but uh, <laughs> the betting markets are always interesting, and so we took a look at the... Uh, each of the Democratic candidates' odds in the betting markets of winning the nomination. And based upon the current not the current candidates and their odds of winning, the odds that the Dem nominee is white is 95%, is a millionaire 92%, is a male 85%, is 70-plus years old 74%, um, supports carbon pricing 70%. It feels to us uh, that it's uh, – that, that uh, the Dems, despite being far more diverse as a party and representing uh, far less – than the uh, super rich white male old people, they seem to be picking them as their front runners. You know, it is. I have to agree with Bruce on this one. It's amazing that the stage is now all white uh, people that that are on the debate stage. Uh, and Andrew Yang's been off and on lately, but I miss that guy. <laughs> that guy, he and Tulsi Gabbard, maybe some of Republican, were so much fun in the debates. It is pretty interesting, and the generational change also. I mean, Mayor Pete is the only one who truly represents a different generation as well. Is it's it's interesting as you're asking to young voters to look at the future and. Does does the future look like a, in my case, a fifty-eight-year-old white guy? Right. I mean, that's that's interesting. I'll maybe. paraphrase St. Francis and say, "Make me woke, Lord." <laughs> Just not yet. And Tulsi Monsignor Vaghi would be very happy with you. And Tulsi Gabbard, who filed a defamation suit against Hillary Clinton today, uh, on behalf of Bernie Sanders, on behalf of Bernie Sanders, maybe she uh, she had some not so nice things to say about about him. Uh, and speaking of the courts, uh, the Supreme Court docket actually starts with an interesting case that's not on your uh, slide, Bruce, but they took up a case on faithless electors yeah. uh, and the ability to uh, hold them to, uh, to cast a popular vote. But a lot of other items, uh, really uh, bedrock culture war issues uh, coming up in front we of the We called it culture war's greatest hits. <laughs> you got abortion. You got gun control. You got religious freedom. You got... Uh, immigration and the dreamers. You've got uh, LGBT rights. Uh, you've got presidential powers and separate, you know, and, and the Democrats' ability to get Trump's taxes. Uh, what are we missing? I mean, this is this is the greatest hits. This is like the Beatles reunion tour, but of culture wars. <laughs> it's like going back to the '90s. And if you want a little gasoline to throw on that fire, uh, you know, let's have a uh, let's have a Supreme Court vacancy. I think Bruce would say it's more like going back to uh, Father Knows Best versus the world we live in today, modern family. Well, it's, you know, sure, there could be a vacancy. And our our unknown, our unexpected cases, we think it's going to be a more productive legislative year than anybody thinks because we think impeachment's going to actually give them more impetus to want to prove that they can do more than fight. A Supreme Court vacancy will put a screeching halt to getting anything done because then they will want to fight because the— the fight is the message at that point. For now, they want to get the impeachment done, do what they said they were going to do to their base, and actually do their jobs. But a Supreme Court vacancy um, would uh, would be uh, a showstopper for purposes of getting things done, partly because, remember, uh, there was uh, the eighth year of president when, when Justice Scalia died. 
and they wanted to fill him with an overwhelmingly qualified judge, Merrick Garland. The message appeared to be, it's an eighth year, we, should, we shouldn't preempt the voters. Yet I have a feeling if a vacancy were to emerge in August of, uh, of this election year, Senator McConnell would figure out how to get her done. Well, Bruce, the corollary to the uh, McConnell doctrine there is uh, only, when the, only when the Senate uh, is the opposite party. Of the <laughs> you, didn't, you did not read well, the that. Well, that would, to me would be interesting. When President Biden is sworn in and there is becomes a vacancy in the first year, does Leader McConnell just hold back moving a judge for three years then at that point, Dean? Is that what happens? And he waits for a new president again? I, I, think, I think maybe you have to. <laughs> but this all feeds into we, this all feeds into what is intense partisanship and uh, you, you, socialism versus racism, uh, the views one party versus the other. And you, my favorite graph in your in your slide deck, Bruce, Whole Foods versus Cracker Barrel. <laughs> that really sums it up. Well, so first, let's give credit where credit is due. That is entirely Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report. It was his brilliant idea to take a look at uh, counties that have Whole Foods within them, which tend to be wealthier, which tend to be urban, and tend to vote more Democratic, and counties that have cracker barrels in them, which tend to be less uh, Democratic voting and more rural and less wealthy. And uh, when he compared how Democrats did in cracker barrel counties versus Whole Food counties, when Bill Clinton won, the gap was 20 years. Bill Clinton's reelect, it was 25, sorry, percent. Great points. Yeah. Um, at uh, Bush v. Gore, it was 32 percent. Bush v. Kerry, 41 percent. Uh, McCain versus Obama, 44% in 2012 with Romney, 48%, 54% Trump v. Clinton. Uh, it's, we're all seeing this and we're all feeling this. It's, it's a very divided country. You can get wine or you can get cheese, but it's hard to get both. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, we need to open more Whole Foods. That's the, that's the challenge here. That is the challenge. All right, guys, uh, predictions. Uh, today is... Thursday. It's day two of the trial. We've already had one admonishment from the Chief Justice uh, on a scale of one to ten, one being the decorum reserved for state funerals and ten being uh, Lord of the Flies, absence of civilization. <laughs> what does the Senate floor look like by next week? Uh, other than they're all tired and they want to go home because they've been sitting on the Senate floor till two o'clock in the morning. I, I, I assume it's somewhere around a five or a six where People are tired of, of each other. The other side of it is now that they're all kind of forced to be together, are there some other conversations going on off the floor that might lead to a big infrastructure deal or not? All to kind of be determined, I think. Dean, it, clearly we've seen a loss of decorum, and it's, it is, uh, look, we saw it in the Clinton impeachment trial in a lot of ways, too. And for me, the scariest part of it all, kind of at the very end of our deck, we had the last two, which uh, we know there's going to be a lot of misinformation efforts and disinformation efforts, whether domestic or foreign or both. What I worry about is who the hell's there to referee a contested 2020? You know, the Supreme Court's less trusted than it used to be. Presidency, the CIA, the FBI, Congress for sure. Um, it's, we know it's gonna be a really close election. And if in a really close election, then we need, you fill in the word here, blank, uh, to show up and to have Americans trust that they will uh, review what happened and assess whether or not uh, the uh, the results are fair and accurate and correct. What do you fill that blank in where all sides are going to say, you know, like Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction, oh, you sent the wolf. Okay. Like, is, who, who can we turn to? One institution fills that gap, and I do not know. Yeah. Isn't that Sean Hannity for the president? Well, each side has their own institution. 
but one that can speak to both sides. I, I don't know that it exists. And so then you think we've built some institutions to be, let's make them even, half Republican, half Democrat, and they will be fair arbiters of election things. It's called the Federal Election Commission, and it's not working right now because it doesn't have the nominees because they've, they ran out of people because nobody can, can confirm for it. <laughs> so the one small experiment we have in trying to have bipartisan, mutually trusted election of oversight and, and enforcement is literally by the side of the road with, you know, on a bunch of cinder blocks right now. The FEC has not had a quorum in six years. Yeah, I think it might even be more than that. Or, or longer. Yeah. They haven't had a basis since uh, McGann left. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Melman, David Cassidy, thanks for joining today. Thank, thank you, you Dean. Dean. And thank you all for listening. I hope you join me again on the next podcast. This is 14th and G, the podcast at the intersection of business and politics.